But those of us that are remaining, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 3. I'm going to try and get the sweep of the narrative here. And so I'll be reading the text as we go through to try and give you a better sense of the narrative so we can keep track of the story. We all like stories, don't we, kids? So let's keep track of the story. Several months ago, I discovered something new about my television remote control. For the first time, when we moved to Houston, I got one of these, well, they're fancy to me, but it's low end of the scale as far as these things are concerned, what's called a DVR. And the thing about it is, you don't even have to be recording a show, and you can pause it. You could be listening to a show, perhaps, gentlemen, if you're watching an important college football game, say like a Big Ten game is on nationally, and you're watching it, and you miss a play, you can go backwards. You can recover from missing something. And I've often wondered, maybe you have as well, wouldn't life be a lot easier if life had a pause button or a rewind button? So that you could catch your mistakes and make them right. So that you would not have to remove your foot from your mouth after you have inserted it. Maybe some of you have had this experience at work. I was working one time on a a, uh, transaction and called someone up, a young attorney who was working on the, the transaction with me, and I said, have you prepared that document? Yes, it's all done. You wanted it? you know, by two, and it's done. I said, okay, well, we're on the phone, we're on the same email system, just shoot it over to me, and I'll look at it, make sure it's good, and we'll send it out. Long pause. Well, actually, it's not done. Okay, let's go rewind a little bit, fix our mistake. We can feel like that in the church as well, and with the church's mission. Now, I have bad news for you. There is no such thing as a remote that pauses or rewinds your life. You can't undo mistakes. But what we can do is something far more powerful. By the power of God's Word, we can come to the Lord and ask Him for the wisdom we need in order to serve Him well to make right decisions, to honor Him, and to obey His law. And we have a wonderful example of that this morning in King Solomon. Here is the man who is the king over God's people. We might say the most important man for the church on earth. And he is not afraid to come before the Lord God humbly and to ask for the wisdom that he needs for so great a task. So what I would like us to look at this morning is Solomon and his need for wisdom. The wisdom that comes from above. It's the same wisdom that we need. And the first thing that we'll see is the king who needed wisdom. The king who needed wisdom. And then, after Solomon has laid out his need, we'll see the God who provides wisdom. The God who provides wisdom. And then the third thing we shall see will be a nation that is blessed by wisdom. 
A king who needs wisdom, a God who provides wisdom, and a nation that is blessed by wisdom. Let's look then at the beginning here of chapter 3. You remember where we left off the story, same time, same day, last week? Solomon has just been established in his kingdom. He's not only on the throne, he has been established in chapter 2. And chapter 3 begins, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall round Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. So the first thing that we see here is the life of the king. Our author sets a context for us because after all, this is a story. And he reminds us of who Solomon is and what's going on. And the first thing that we see is a snapshot of Solomon's life that is negative. It's as if Solomon stood for the picture and the flash didn't quite look right. And we see all of the flaws in Solomon's character. The snapshot is political, it's economic, and it's religious. The first thing we see is that Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh. Literally, the Hebrew says he became the son-in-law of Pharaoh by marrying his daughter. Now, one of the things that we know from looking and comparing Scripture with Scripture is that Solomon was already married because his son, who would succeed him, Rehoboam, was born one year ago before this. He was born to an Ammonite, the wife of Solomon. And we know this because we know Solomon reigned for 40 years. And we know that when Rehoboam took the throne, he was 41 years old. So Solomon is already married. This should already point out to us that Solomon is having some difficulties keeping God's law. Because he's not having one wife, but more than one wife. We'll see that situation get completely out of control in a few chapters. But it's not just that. He's making an alliance with a people who are hostile to the people of God. Now, it wouldn't have been that long ago that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And now here Solomon is trying to make a pact, a treaty together with Egypt for political gains. It's not as bad as marrying a Canaanite wife, which is expressly forbidden in Deuteronomy 7. But it's pretty bad. It's one of those things that when your kids do something that's wrong, that isn't exactly letter of law black, you can say, really bad consequence coming down the train. But you know, no good is going to come of this. Maybe a little bit more subtle, but nothing good is going to come of it. Economically, we see that Solomon is a master builder. But do you notice what he's doing? He's building his own house and the house of the Lord together with the wall around Jerusalem. We'll see later that it took Solomon actually longer to build his own house than to build the temple. And the temple building was actually put on hold to finish his own house. 
We can see why our author puts these together, because you can just imagine, gentlemen, some of you who, unlike me, do projects around the house, you rip up the bathroom and get it fixed, and there's only so long that your wife will allow it to stay in that kind of state. And then the daily reminders come about, can we get this done now, please? I'd really like to be moved into my bathroom. I'd really like to be moved into my kitchen. You can imagine Solomon's new Egyptian princess wife saying to him, can't we just put the temple on hold? I really want this palace finished so I can get moved in. So Solomon is beginning to see difficulties even at the beginning of his reign. And the third thing we see is that his religious status is not what it should be. He's slow in building the temple, as we've said, but do you notice that he is offering sacrifices on the high places? And we're going to see as we go through 1 Kings that the high places equal bad. High places equal idolatry. Now, this is at the very beginning of worship on the high places. It hasn't really slid into idolatry. We know this because when Solomon goes to Gibeon to sacrifice, the tabernacle is actually located there. We know that from 2 Chronicles chapter 1, that David took the ark into Jerusalem, but while the temple was a building, he left the tabernacle at Gibeon. So Solomon is not exactly on the top of his game, either politically, economically, or religiously. But it's a mixed bag, because Solomon does have a lot going for him. You look in verses 3 and verses 5, we see this wondrous statement. Solomon loved the Lord. Now that may not seem like much to you. We speak about that all the time, loving the Lord. Solomon is the only king of whom this statement is made, that he loved the Lord. We'll see in a few chapters how that contrasts when Solomon's love is now focused not on the Lord anymore, but on his wives in chapter 9, 10, and 11. So he loves the Lord, and this is a unique comment about Solomon, and it actually is fulfilling Deuteronomy 6, where to fulfill the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is something else we're going to see, that all of the kings of Israel are going to be tested on the scales of the law of Deuteronomy. And right now, Solomon looks pretty good in that respect. He's also serving the Lord. He goes to go sacrifice at the tabernacle at Gibeon, and he takes up the entire nation with him. We see this in 2 Chronicles. He takes all the assembly with him to go to sacrifice to the Lord God. This is who Solomon is. He's a man who's not perfect. He's not horrible on his worst day. He's not perfect on his best day. We might say that with the exception of being a king, and with the exception of living a long time ago, he's a lot like you and me. He's got his good days and his bad days, his good habits and his bad habits. And so, what does that tell us? What does a man like this need? Well, he tells us, beginning in verse 5, a man like this needs help from the Lord God. Verse 5, after... The Lord asked Solomon, what shall I give you? Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. 
And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? Solomon knows he needs help. He knows he's not perfect, and he goes to the Lord. But do you notice that his going to the Lord in prayer isn't really his idea? Do you notice who initiates this conversation in prayer? It's the Lord, isn't it? The Lord graciously condescends and comes down and says to Solomon, What shall I give you? What grace? Could you imagine Solomon's heart must just skip a beat? Not only has the Lord God come down to talk to me, He wants to give to me, and He wants me to pick what I get. What grace in the Lord God. The God God of the universe initiates this contact with Solomon. And Solomon understands it. For the first words out of his mouth are, You have shown. He begins with the Lord. It's emphatic in the Hebrew. He says, You. And he says, I need to come before you, O Lord. I need to come to you in prayer. This whole conversation is steeped in prayer. The word ask here occurs eight times in this chapter. Five times in one verse alone. Solomon comes before the Lord. He is praying that the Lord will give him a blessing. And the first thing that he does in asking for this blessing is he recounts all of the past blessings that the Lord has given to him. You know that old hymn? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. That's what Solomon is doing. He says, you have been so faithful to my father David, and you have kept all of your promises, and you have set me on your throne. You, O Lord, are faithful and good. Have you tried that when you need prayer? When the going is really difficult at the job? or with your health, or in relationships with your family? Have you started your prayer first by recounting all of the ways in which the Lord God has showered His blessings upon you? You see, that's the place to begin, because it puts us in the proper frame of mind, not just in a a spirit of gratitude, but it reminds us that God is a God, is a prayer-hearing God. We remember all of the things that He has done. Solomon recounts his blessings on David, his blessings on Israel. He says, your people are so vast that they cannot be numbered. Do you remember where that phrase comes from? It comes from God's words to Abraham, saying that his descendants shall be numerous, a multitude that is unable to be numbered, like the sand by the seashore, like the star in the skies. Solomon says, God, you have kept all of your promises, not just to my father, but to all of your people at all times. And then he says, Lord, I need your grace. 
and your blessing. He says, I'm like a little child. Now, this does not refer to chronology of age. Solomon has just gone out and put a hit contract out on some enemies last chapter. Okay? He's a grown man. He has a son. He's married. What does Solomon mean when he says he's a little child? I think, in a sense, he means the same thing that our Lord does when he says, you must become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, I come before you, Lord, humble, knowing that even though I am the king of this your great people, I am nothing before you. I am completely dependent upon you. This is the kind of prayer that gets God's attention. This is the kind of prayer that God wants to draw out of us because that's the kind of communion He wants with us. He wants us to be humble. Solomon acknowledges that this is not just a saying because he says, I don't know whether to go out, how to come out, to go out or come in. Now you may think, well, this is more like saying you're a little child. He's saying, I don't know how to open a door, but that's not what Solomon's saying here. This phrase, to go out and come in, is the way it was spoken of, of a leader leading out an army, the way a leader led a nation. And Solomon says, I'm not just saying this for the sake of saying it, Lord. I don't know how to lead your people. And I want to do it right. The third thing that he does that I want us to remember is, he sets the context for this prayer, and then it's a prayer really for God's people more than for himself. He emphasizes the fact that God's people are numerous, that God's people are mighty, and that he wants to serve them. God comes to him and he says, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon starts by putting the people of God first, not himself. Is that a challenge for you today? If God came and asked you, what do you want? Would you say revival in the land? Would you say blessings upon the people of God? Or would you be tempted to say a car that runs better? A house that's a bit bigger? Or even a better personal prayer life? More diligence in reading God's word? But you see, Solomon here has the concern of the people of God. This is the man who needs the Lord God, and he makes sure that he expresses it clearly. And the great blessing for Solomon is that he speaks as one who needs wisdom to a God who provides wisdom. This God is the prayer-hearing God. That's the first thing we notice about who God is here in verse 10, that he is a prayer-hearing God. It pleased the Lord, our text says, that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches... Or the, life, or the life of your enemies, I have asked, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you both what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. You see, God wanted Solomon to ask him for his blessing. God wanted Solomon to ask him for wisdom. Because you see, the Lord God knows something. He knows something that we need to understand as well. 
It's what James says in chapter 1 and verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, have you ever felt like that? You need wisdom to raise your children because you don't know what you're doing. You get married and you need wisdom to relate well to your spouse because you don't know what you're doing. You need to make a big decision about a job or where to live and you're churning up inside because you don't know what you're doing. The Bible says if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. The way James actually says it, he says, ask the giving God. If you need wisdom, if you are struggling right now with your walk before the Lord, if you are struggling right now with a decision you need to make, if you are struggling right now with aspects of the faith, you need wisdom. And you need to go to God. Solomon was already wise. We saw that in chapter 2. His wisdom was referred to. Solomon was already powerful. Solomon already seemingly had it all together. But he knew he needed wisdom and he went to the Lord God. And God gives him what he asks for. What does Solomon ask for? He asks for, in our text, it says, an understanding mind. And that is, that is a metaphor that we use. The word mind isn't even actually a physical object. It's something that's a part of our being. In the Hebrew, they thought, remember how I told you that Greeks felt from their guts? Hebrews thought from their heart. The heart in, in Israel was the seat of everything. Your mind, your will, your emotions. It was the very center of your being. It wasn't just something pretty you put on a Valentine's card. I heart Texas. I heart you. No, if you were in Israel and you said, I heart you, that would mean I understand who you are. I can think about you. I can know you. I can love you because of who you are. And this word understanding actually is the verb to hear. So what Solomon is asking for is a hearing heart. Do you catch that? Solomon says, I'm so desperate, I need to know how to rule your people. I need to know how to lead. And you know what I need, God? I don't need a sharp mind. I need a hearing heart so that I can hear others so that I can judge cases. We're going to see Solomon hearing in just a few minutes. But this word hearing in Hebrew has a greater context to it. It's not just that you hear, because in Israel, before, in Israel, you didn't just hear and it go in one ear and out the other. Ladies, you ever had that with your husbands? You're talking and he's multitasking, and it goes in one ear and out the other? Maybe husbands, you had that with your wives. I know we've all had that with our kids, right? But no, when you hear the word of God, you must hear and you must do something else. What? Obey. So this same word for hear is the word for obey. So what Solomon wants is a heart that listens and obeys. He says, God, I need one thing to lead your people. I need a heart that obeys your law. And guess what comes from that? Wisdom, practical, 
good wisdom. From hearing and obeying God. Do you want others to listen to you? Parents, do you want your children to listen to you so that their lives are blessed? Then you must obey the word of God. You cannot expect others to listen if you do not obey. Children, do you want your parents to understand you and to listen to you? Then you must obey the word of God. No one listens unless you have an obeying, hearing heart. Solomon knows this, and that's why he asks for it. And then God gives to him not only that, but he gives to him far and above what he asks for. You ever heard that before? Paul talks about it in the book of Philippians. Some of you have had that experience. You ask and ask and ask, and you wait and wait and wait, and then God just unloads his blessings on you. Sometimes it's too much to take, isn't it? But that's what God does here. He gives beyond anything that we think to ask. And it's very interesting. Matthew chapter 6, which talks about this. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, God tells us not to be anxious about our life or what we eat or what we drink or our body or what we put on. He says, look the birds of the air. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even who? Solomon was not so arrayed in all his glory. And he says, don't worry about this. Our Lord says, seek first what? The kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Solomon's prayer is a model for you to pray. Do you desire to be blessed? Seek first the kingdom of God. And you will be arrayed even as Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed with wisdom, with a heart that obeys. How do I know that? Because the promise of the Holy Spirit is for the new covenant believer. God has stepped up his blessings upon his people. We can receive even more than Solomon received, as great as his gift was. This is the prayer hearing God. Aren't you glad he hears prayers? But he's more than the prayer hearing God. He's also the promise keeping God. Look here at verse 14. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. God is a promise-keeping God. He says, I promise to put my blessing upon you. And he does it. Solomon wakes up and he offers thanksgiving sacrifices because he knows the Lord has kept his promise to give him wisdom. He knows the Lord has kept his promise to put him on the throne and establish him. We saw that last week. He knows the Lord has kept his promise to David. 
But there's something else, too. There's verse 14. God is also a promise-keeping God and that He gives us warnings. He says, if you would have long life, you must walk in my statutes. You must obey. If you would get all of the blessings that I would shower down upon you, you need to walk in the path that I've set forward for you. For that is the path of blessing. We know that Solomon received wisdom. We know that Solomon received great wealth. The scripture tells us he's the wealthiest of all kings. We know that Solomon had peace. His enemies did not attack him. You know what we also know? Solomon didn't have extraordinarily long life. He died at 60. He was not obedient to the Lord. It's all of the blessings that the Lord wanted to shower down upon him. He left at the table, as it were, focusing upon himself. This is the God we serve. He is a God who loves to hear prayer, a God who loves to answer prayer, and a God who keeps his promises. Is this your God today? Do you trust the promises of God? Christian, do you trust him with your children? Do you trust him with your grandchildren? Do you trust him with your marriage? Do you trust him with where you're going to go to college? Do you trust him to keep you safe? If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, God is a promise-keeping God. You must trust Him that He has done the work that needed to be done on the cross in the Lord Jesus Christ. That promise, too, is yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must trust in the promise. You must trust in the promise-keeping God. That is the only place that happiness, joy, and life are found. You can't find them anywhere else. Only at the cross. Well, we've seen a king who needs wisdom, and we've seen a God who provides for wisdom, and now we see that Solomon, just like we are, lives in a community. And that the blessing that comes upon Solomon actually comes upon the whole nation. There's a nation that is blessed by his wisdom. We see Solomon's wisdom in action at verse 16. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Do you get who's in the house? They're making it pretty clear. There's a reason for that. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me. And while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. We have a nation here that needs wisdom and we have one example of this. It's a pretty particular example. And we're going to see first, wisdom solves the case. Some of you may like detective novels or shows. We're going to see Solomon here giving us an example of being a detective in the scriptures. Wisdom solving the case. 
This is a very familiar story, isn't it? Everyone knows this story. Even people, I'm assuming, who've never really been in church could talk about Solomon cutting the baby in half. What we miss, though, is is that because this story is so familiar, we miss that it's incredibly unique. There's no other story like this in the Bible. There's no other story like this in the ancient Near East. It's completely of a whole cloth. This is the stumper of all stumpers. This is the most difficult case that you could have. You have two women giving birth at almost exactly the same time. The babies are probably look almost exactly alike because most babies look alike at three, four days or whatever it is. And there's no one else in the house, right? You remember them saying that. So they can't go to the law because the law says you must have witnesses. Are there any witnesses? No. There's no one else in the house. So they can't go to the law for help. God's inspired holy law. What do they do? What they do is they come and try and reconstruct the events much like they do on these television shows where they figure out which way the bullet went or where the person tripped. And the first woman recounts all of the events. And you might say, well, if this is true, how does she know this? Well, she's reconstructing it. She wakes up in the morning. She's got a baby that's not alive. And the first thing she says is, what's going on? And she surmises what has gone on. And what happens? Solomon confronts them. Look at verse 23. Then the king said, One says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. The other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give one half, and give half to one, And half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. You see what's happening here? Solomon is using his wisdom, isn't he? Did Solomon get x-ray goggles from God? Do you think Solomon applied some sort of higher algebra or trigonometry to this? Maybe he used prehistoric scientific DNA testing. No. How does Solomon figure out whose child it is? He sees the heart, doesn't he? Do you see what happens here? The one who asked for the hearing heart has a heart that can hear the hearts of others. That's wisdom. That's leadership. Solomon hears and uncovers the hearts of these two women. It's as if they were wearing shirts underneath. One was white, one was black. It's so stark. God uses Solomon through the wisdom that he has given to uncover hearts. Let me tell you something. 
God is still in the uncovering heart business. And he still uses his people to uncover the hearts of others. That's the kind of wisdom you want to be praying for. A wisdom that allows you to hear the hearts of others. To cut through the phony baloney. To cut through the pretense. To know when someone is hurting and when you say, how are you? And they say, well, I'm okay. We're doing fine. To know that they need you to put your arm around them. To know that when someone is caught in a besetting sin and they deny it, that you say, brother, sister, I need to help you. It doesn't seem right here. To uncover the hearts of each other. And we also need to have our own hearts uncovered, don't we? Do you praise God for the wisdom that he gives to others? Or do you only praise God for the wisdom that he gives to you? Do you only want to be the doctor and assume you never get sick? I thank the Lord for brothers and sisters who come alongside and say, I think you need some help here. I think... You need help with your heart. And do you see what happens in this? The heart is uncovered and mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the way of the Lord, isn't it? Solomon's just acting as his agent. We might put it this way if we were reading a gospel passage. We might see, say, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever seeks to give or to lose his life will Save it. That's the same principle being worked out here. Do you see? This mother would rather that life happened than that she would be right. She was willing to lose for the blessing that would come. That's another challenge we have. Are you willing to lose that God might be glorified? Or is it more important to win? That's a difficult task that comes to us. I'm not real fond of that. I don't play to lose. I play to win. But life is not a game. You see, we need to put others before ourselves, just as Solomon did. We need to ask the Lord for wisdom, just as Solomon did. We need to listen to the hearts of others, just as Solomon did. And we need to see mercy triumph over judgment. And what happens when that happens? We see that wisdom then is triumphant. Look at verse 28. And all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king. Because they perceived what? That the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. They saw that Solomon had a heart that obeyed God and that it was a listening, a hearing heart. And they were struck with awe. And they praised God because they perceived that God's wisdom was in him. The text here is repetitive in a way that you don't see. It actually says, And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had judged. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do the judgment. It's the same word over and over again. Judgment. Justice. You see, Solomon's wisdom has consequences. It's a blessing for the whole people of God. 
This shouldn't surprise us. Solomon asked for a discerning heart. Do you remember that? God said he'd give him a heart that discerns. The discerning one is the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 15 says, He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose or discern the good. Christ is the fulfillment of Solomon's wisdom. It's interesting, there's a psalm, Psalm 72. In most Bibles, it's, it has a title, and the title is a psalm of Solomon. We think of David as writing psalms, but actually Solomon writes this one. Solomon writes, Give the king your justice, O God, and your royal righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. Then the prophet Isaiah takes this psalm and in Isaiah 11 specifically applies it to the Christ. He uses the same words. You see, the wisdom that Solomon wanted, needed, is found in Jesus. So we don't need to go to Gibeah. We don't need to see God in a vision. We don't need to try and run for king or queen. All we need to do is go to Jesus. And we find the wisdom that Solomon had there. Because Paul tells us that it is in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Jesus Christ has become to us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the wisdom from God. Do you need wisdom today? My guess is you do. I know I do. If you would find the wisdom of God, it's easier than you think. You just go to Jesus. And He'll give you a hearing heart. A heart that obeys. A heart that listens to others. A heart for ministry. A heart for God's people. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wisdom that comes from Solomon. And we pray, O Lord, that you would impress upon our hearts that we need this wisdom that could only come from the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this now, even now, Lord, as you prepare us to partake of the table of the Lord, that we would know him better and love him more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now hear the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now and forever. Amen.